Section 19 of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology and Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Leo Weiner. Chapter 13, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 13. Division 2. About God the Savior and a Special Relation to the Human Race. Such is the title of this division. All this division, with the exception of the last chapter about retribution, is occupied with the exposition of the teaching about the Church and its mysteries. Chapter 1. About God as a Sanctifier. 165. Conception of Sanctifications. Participation of all the persons of the Most Holy Trinity in the matter of sanctification, and the recital of means or conditions for sanctification. In this article, after the teaching and the proofs of the fact that all three persons take part in our sanctification, the Father is the source, the Son the cause, the Holy Ghost the one who achieves the sanctification, it says, 4. In order that we might be able to make the deserts of our Savior our own, and really be sanctified, he 1. founded on earth his kingdom of grace, the Church, as a living instrument through which our sanctification takes place, 2. communicates us in the Church and through the Church the grace of the Holy Ghost, as a force which sanctifies us, and three has established sacraments in the church as means through which the grace of the Holy Ghost is communicated to us. Christ has founded the church for our sanctification, the concept of the church I met in the very beginning of the theology. In the very beginning it said that the dogma was a decree of the church, and later on, in the whole exposition of the dogmas, their correctness was defined by saying that the church taught so in regard to them. But heretofore there has been no definition of the church of what is to be understood by the word. From everything which I knew before, from everything which had been expounded so far, I assumed that the church was a collection of believers, established in such a way that it can express and determine its decrees, but now begins the teaching about the church as being an instrument for the sanctification of men. It says that the church is Christ's kingdom of grace, that it communicates to us the grace of the Holy Ghost, and that it has sacraments, but nothing is said about the church on which the dogmas which have been expounded heretofore are based. On the contrary, the Church receives here an entirely different meaning from what I ascribe to it as the foundation of the whole of teaching about faith. Then follows. 166. The different meanings of the word Church. The sense in which the teachings about it will be expounded here, and points of view on the subject. The various meanings of the word Church are explained. All three meanings which are ascribed to the word Church are such that with them is impossible the conception of that Church which has established the dogmas. The first meaning of the word church is, according to the theology, a society of all the rational and free beings, that is, of the angels and of the men who believe in Christ the Savior, and of the men who are united in him as in their one head. Such a definition of the church not only does not make clear the conception of the church which establishes dogmas, but imparts in advance to the forecoming definition of the church certain symptoms with which it is still harder to understand how such a church could ever have established any dogmas. The further elucidations of this first meaning do not clear it up. All it says is, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. This, according to the theology, forms one meaning of the word church. Here is the second meaning. According to the second, less broad and more accepted meaning, 
The Church of Christ embraces all men which profess and which have professed the faith of Christ, every one of them, no matter at what time they lived and wherever they may be, whether living upon earth or already in the country of the dead. According to this second meaning, the Church cannot be which I supposed it to be, and cannot establish dogmas, for an aggregate of all men living and all those who have lived at any time cannot express any dogmas. Then follows an analysis who of the dead belong to this Church and who do not. And after dividing the church into the militant and triumphant, there is given a third meaning of the word church. Finally, in a still narrower but most accepted and usual sense, the church of Christ signifies only the militant church of the New Testament, or Christ's kingdom of grace. We believe as we have been taught to believe, say the bishops of the East in their epistle on the Orthodox faith, in the so-called and real, the one holy Catholic apostolic church, which embraces all in every place, no matter who they may be, who believe in Christ, who still existing in their earthly pilgrimage, have not yet taken up their abode in the kingdom of heaven. In this sense, we are going to take the church in the present exposition of the doctrine concerning it. According to this meaning, by the word church are understood all those who believe or have believed in Christ. This meaning is in general intelligible, but even in this sense, the church does not correspond to that activity of the church, the sanctification of men, and still less to that other activity, the establishment of dogmas, of which this theology has been speaking in all preceding chapters. Such a church cannot serve as an instrument of sanctification, for if by church are to be understood all the believers in Christ, then all believers will be sanctifying all believers. In order that the church should be able to sanctify all believers, it must of necessity be a special institution among all the believers. Still less can such a church establish any dogmas, for if all believing Christians believed alike, there would be no dogmas and no teachings of the church in refutal of heretical teachings. The fact that there are believers in Christ who are heretics and who reject some dogmas and put forward others which in their opinion are true shows that the church must of necessity be understood not as all believers in Christ, but as a certain establishment, which not only does not embrace all the Christians, but even as a special institution among Christians who are not heretics. If there are dogmas which are expressed in definite, unchanging words, these words must be expressed and worked out by an assembly of men who have agreed to accept this and not another expression. If there is an article of law, there must of necessity exist lawgivers or a legislative assembly, although I may be able to express myself by saying that the article of the law is a true expression of the will of the whole nation. I, in order to explain this institution, must show that the legislative assembly which gave the law is a true exponent of the will of the people, and for that I must define the legislative assembly as an institution. Just so the theology, which has expounded so many dogmas, which has recognized them as the only true ones, and which asserts their truth by saying that the church has accepted them as such, must tell us what the church itself is that has established these dogmas. But the theology does nothing of the kind. On the contrary, it gives to the church the meaning of a union of angels and men, both the living and the dead, and the union of all believers in Christ, from which can result neither sanctification nor the establishment of dogmas. The theology in this case acts as would act a man, who trying to assert his right to a legacy, instead of announcing first all those grounds in which he bases his rights, should speak of the legality in general, and of the right of inheritance, should prove the falseness of the pretensions of all the others, and should even explain his own management of the debatable property, but should not say a word about that on which his rights are based. That is precisely what the theology does in all this division about the teachings of the Church. It speaks of the foundation of the Church by Christ, of the heretical teachings which do not agree with the Church, of the activity of the Church, but not a word is said as to what is to be understood by the true Church, and the definition of the Church as such, 
which corresponds with its activity, the sanctification of men and the establishment of dogma, is given only at the end, and here again not in the form of a definition, but in the form of the description and subdivision. And thus, without giving a definition of the Church, which would correspond to reality, the theology says, In order that this exposition may be as detailed as possible, we shall view the Church one from the more external side, namely from the side of its origin, dissemination, and purpose, two from a more internal side, more, for it is impossible entirely to separate the internal from the external side of the Church, and we shall speak of the composition and internal structure of the Church. Three, finally, as a consequence from everything which has been said, we shall give an exact idea about the essence itself of the Church and of its essential properties. 167. Here the theology speaks of the establishment of the Church by our Lord Jesus Christ. It is proved that the Church, according to the definition of the theology, as men who believe in Christ, was established by Jesus Christ. In this article, it is proved that Jesus Christ wished that men, having accepted the new faith, should not maintain it separated from each other, but should form for this purpose a separate religious society. The desire to form one society out of his followers, the Savior has frequently expressed, for example, A. After the Apostle Peter, in the name of all the Apostles, professed him the Son of God. Upon this rock, that is, on this confession, our Lord then said to us, Will I build my church? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. B. In the parable of the Good Shepherd, in these words, I am the Good Shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold, one shepherd. C. In the prayer to the Heavenly Father, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. With the idea of founding his kingdom of grace upon earth, he began his first sermon to men, as the evangelist Matthew tells us. From that time Jesus began to preach, and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. With the same sermon, the Lord sent his disciples out among the Jews. Go, he said to them, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And how often he spoke to men about this kingdom of God, both in parables and not in parables. All that so far only tells us that Christ wanted to disseminate his teachings, the teaching about the kingdom of heaven. So far, nothing contradicts the meaning which the theology ascribes to the church. All believers in Christ naturally had to unite in faith in Christ. But after that, the theology says, 2. What Christ intended to do, that he accomplished. He himself laid the foundation for his church when he chose his twelve disciples, who, believing in him and being under his power, formed one society under one head, and formed his first church, when, on the other hand, he himself arranged everything necessarily in order to form a definite society out of his followers, namely, a. He established the order of the teachers who were to disseminate his faith among the nations. b. He established the sacrament of the baptism in order to receive into that society all those who believed in him. c. The sacrament of the Eucharist, for the closer union of the members of the society among themselves and with him as the head. d. The sacrament of repentance, for the reconciliation and new union with him and with the church of those members who violate his laws and decrees, as also all other sacraments. For that reason, the Lord spoke in the days of his public service about his church as already existing. Here with the words definite society begins the obvious departure from the given meaning of the church, and there is introduced an entirely different idea of the church than as being a union of believers. Here the theology is apparently speaking of the teaching church, of which nothing has as yet been said. 
It says that Christ appointed teachers for the dissemination of his faith among the nations, although the idea of the teaching church does not enter into the definition of the church as being a union of believers. Still less do the sacraments enter into that definition. Both define the church of the chosen among the believers. But let us suppose that the theology is not sticking closely to its definitions, that it expounds the teaching about that exclusive church which has the power to teach and impart the mysteries. Let us see what it is based upon. It says that Christ himself established the church with its teachers and with the sacraments of baptism, Eucharist, and repentance, and that the texts are referred to but not quoted. Here are the texts. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is adduced as proof that Christ established the one society, the church. It is evident that the text has nothing in common with the establishment of the church. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. These words of Paul, who did not even know Christ, are ascribed to Christ. The other texts have been quoted, but striking is the text which proves that Christ established the sacrament of repentance. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. On this passage the theology bases the establishment of the sacraments by Christ, without considering that all that is said here is that, according to an incorrect interpretation of the theology, which will be examined later, Christ transfers his power to the apostles. But it does not say wherein this power is to consist. Consequently, any false teaching may, with equal right, be based upon these words. But having picked out these quasi-confirmatory texts, the theology in the end corrects itself, and admits that in the time of Christ there did not yet exist a church with sacraments and teachers. In these discussions, the theology already prepares the reader for that substitution for the conception of a church as a union of all believers of the conception of a teaching and sacramental church. In the following discussion, the church is mentioned no longer in the sense in which it was mentioned before, as being a union of all believers, but as an exclusive church, separate in its structure and in its rights from all the other believers. 3. Having received power from above, the holy apostles, after receiving the divine message, went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word with signs following. And A from the believers in various places tried to form societies which they called churches, B enjoined those believers to have gatherings in which to hear the word of God and send up prayers in common, C exhorted them to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, presenting to them that they formed one body of the Lord Jesus, of whom they were but members in particular, and had one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and were all partakers of the one bread, that is, had everything for their internal as well as their external union. D. Finally, they were commanded not to forsake their assemblings, under the penalty of expulsion from the church and eternal perdition. Thus, with the will and cooperation of the Savior, who himself immediately put down the foundations of the church, it was then planted in all corners of the world. It says that the church was not one, but that there were many separate churches. It says that they were all one body of Christ, but that at the same time there was one church, from which were expelled those who left the assemblings. What kind of a church it was that expelled members, it does not say. Thus, it is evident that the theology no longer is treating about the church which it defined before, but some other church, of which the definition is not given. In the proper place, I will show how incorrectly the theology makes use of the text of the gospel, in order to confirm its statements. In the next article, it becomes apparent that there is no longer any mention of the church as a union of all the believers in Christ, but of some other kind of a church. 168. The Extension of the Church of Christ. Who belongs to the church and who does not belong to it? 
In this article, the proof is brought that to this still undefined church belong all the Orthodox believers, but it does not say who decides the question of orthodoxy and unorthodoxy. At the same time, there is a detailed definition of who these unorthodox believers are. That is discussed on ten pages. This discussion about the heretics and dissenters who are excluded from the Orthodox Church, which is not yet defined, is remarkable. In order to judge correctly in respect to the propositions disclosed by us as to the heretics and dissenters, it is necessary to know what heresy and what dissent is, and what kinds of heretics are meant here. About heresy and dissent we receive the following ideas from the ancient teachers of the Church. A. From Basil the Great. The ancients understood one thing by heresy, another by dissent, and still another thing by arbitrary concourse. They called heretics those who fell off and became estranged from faith. Dissenters, those who differed in opinion in regards to certain church subjects and questions which admitted of healing. But arbitrary concourses, meetings formed by disobedient presbyters and bishops and ignorant people. B. From St. Jerome. Between heresy and dissent there is, in my opinion, this difference that heresy consists in the subversion of the dogma, while a dissent similarly expels from the church on account of a disagreement with a bishop. Propter episcopacem dissentium. Consequently, these two things may in certain relations appear different by their origin, but in reality there is no dissent which has not something in common with some heresy in its revolt against the church. Why not tell the truth? The following words are not merely remarkable, but simply disgusting. When we say that the heretics and the dissenters do not belong to the church, we do not mean those who hold the heresy or dissent in secret, trying to appear as belonging to the church and outwardly carrying out its regulations, or those who are carried away by heretical or schismatic errors in their ignorance and without any malice or stubbornness. For it is evident that neither have they absented themselves from the society of the believers, nor have they been excommunicated by the power of the church, although they may already be excommunicated by the judgment of God, though neither they nor we may know it. Such people it is best to leave to the secret judgment of him who knows all the secret thoughts of man and searches their hearts and entrails. But we mean the declared heretics and dissenters, who have already separated themselves from the church or are excommunicated by it. Consequently intentional, stubborn, and therefore in the highest degree guilty, heretics and dissenters. Against them were chiefly directed the utterances of the holy fathers and teachers of the church, which we have quoted above. End of section 19.